0: to this edition of Guitar Talk. I want to thank you so much for being here today. Before we get into it, I got to remind you that come Sunday, uh, July 17th, Guitar Talk is hosting its very first Chicago National Guitar Show that's going to take place at the Kankakee County Fairgrounds in Kankakee, Illinois, right off of Interstate 57, just about 50 minutes south the city of chicago it's a place where you can come and buy sell and trade new used and vintage guitar and instrument gear it's going to be people coming from all over the country so if you got this gym you want to sell or if you get your eye on a new amp or vintage guitar or handful of pedals or something this is a perfect place to go um if you want information on be, being a vendor and having space or if you want to get your admission ticket early and save five bucks, you can go to guitartalkofficial.com. At the top of the page is a tab that says Chicago National Guitar Show. It's going to be a great time. Uh, it's 11 to 4 on uh, Sunday, uh, July 17th. All right. Uh, now, I'm digging into the archives for this show, and and I think it's simply because the person that, you know, that's on is somebody that um, was always a huge influence on me from the early, early, early days of Jimmy Warren. And, uh, you know, last year he announced that uh, he was done playing that he couldn't tour no more he canceled all of the dates that he had because of uh of an illness that wouldn't allow him to to move forward and um and i'm talking about frank marino frank marino mahogany rush um i've known frank for for some time now and um i don't know i've just been thinking about him I've been listening a lot to his music lately, and I just thought, well, you know what, it's been, he was in season one, we're in season three, I know it's kind of soon, but I was just thinking about it when I thought, you know, I need to bring this back up and re-air this because he's somebody that people need to, you know, remember and listen to and, uh, you know, enjoy his music still this day. So, uh, unfortunately, this isn't a video interview Um, when I originally did this with Frank a couple of years ago uh, Frank wasn't too hip on how to do videos so it's just an audio video but you're going to enjoy it it's long you know so you might want to download this so you can go back and listen to it as you know as little pieces if that's what it takes for you but it is chock full of some really really good information Uh, Frank's a smart guy he's been around the industry for a very long time you know he's seen the good and the bad and uh, man he he knows it all man he knows gear he knows music he knows the industry Uh, he's he's a smart cookie he really is and so uh, this is just one of the small ways for me to be able to you know keep him in the forefront of people's minds a little bit and pay a little bit of tribute to him. And just so you know, we're going to do this with some other people down the road. I've got some interviews with people who aren't with us anymore, like Jack Bruce and Charlie Daniels and people like that. And uh, But right now we want to focus solely on Frank. So here, do yourself a favor, sit down, put your feet up, get a nice cool beverage and enjoy this conversation with the one and only Frank Marino of Mahogany Rush right here on Guitar Talk.
1: This person literally sat down and listened to the records and learned shit off it, and right. meant something to them. So that's why it gives me a little more bang for the buck when I hear that.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I can honestly say from my own standpoint, your music has, uh, it's been on my playlist. It's something that I listen to regularly because I, 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 I am kind of amazed that you're playing and I am kind of amazed at the fact that you didn't get the you know the the house or the fame or whatever because you play just as good if not better than you know 90 of 90 percent of the guys who you know have made it if you know in that in that fashion because I think you were doing things I think you were innovative you one thing that I I always dug about Frank Marito was the fact that Here's a guy that just closes his eyes and just lets it go. I don't know where it comes from. Yeah,
1: well, it's probably, you know, yeah, that's, I think, but if you think about it, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. (laughs) At the end of the day, that's kind of how you're supposed to do it, you know? I mean, it's almost the same in other things, like I happen to play a little bit of hockey, you know, ice hockey, and... um, and sometimes when you go to take a shot the one you score on is the one you didn't think about it just finds the corner you know
2: like yeah. it,
3: it,
1: just, it just happens you just know that it's going there you know yeah and i think music is a lot like that but when you consider you know are, are we is this are we doing the interview right now or yeah. are we just talking
0: no 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 okay. I, yeah I'm, I'm recording yeah it. yeah
1: okay i just want to make sure <laughs> yeah. uh, when you consider something about a musician, right? Like when I looked at a guy when growing up and I'd say, wow, that's a really great musician. Sometimes you wouldn't say he was a great musician. Sometimes you'd say he was a great player. Right. And people could say, well, what's the difference? And the way I look at it is this, is that there's there's three or four elements that go into a guy who's playing music. So let's say you walked into a room, and you saw a guy playing guitar, and he was just doing some really amazing stuff. And not only was he moving amazingly, you know, like really technically well, no no mistakes, the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. But the phrases he was doing were fantastic phrases. They weren't just linear, and they were, wow, what a line, gee, how did he do that? You know, that kind of thing that you get a feeling from. And you'd say, wow, this guy's a really great musician. Now, let's say you you rewind, you stop the tape, you rewind, you walk back into that same room, okay? okay? You've got the same musician, you haven't seen him yet. He's the same guy. But he decided he was going to turn his guitar around and play it left-handed. Now, all of a sudden, you'd see that guy and you'd go, "Ah, oh, this guy can't play. And yet you're talking about the very same musician. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: so,
1: so on the one hand, you said, what a great musician. Wow, what a musician. Now you walk in, and if his hand isn't working, that's the one part that you need. Yeah. All of a sudden you'd say, well, he's not a good musician. But he's actually the same musician. He just, his hand's not working because he's playing the other way. He still has all the knowledge, all the lines, all the phrases, all what goes together. He's got that all in his head, not in his hand. Yeah. But you don't know that because his hand is not doing what his brain knows. So those are two independent elements. So the musician part is in the brain. The performer part, the the uh, let's say that the abilities part, is in the hand or the coordination. Yeah. But there's another part. There's what people call feel, if you want to put it this way inspiration like it's one thing to know everything about music you can take a professor of music and he's going to know you know a scale is this and you need to use a minor scale with this chord and this has a relative you know minor they'll know all that this is the musician part is the technical knowledge but the inspiration that thinks up the idea the song where does that come from that's the third part yeah and when you get When you get two of them, the hand and the brain, you get a musician, or you get a performer, or you get both. But when you get all three of them, you get an artist.
0: Yeah. That's a good way. That's a a good analogy. It's a good way to put that. Yeah,
1: I'm very loath to call people artists. As we tend to use the term, I think we overuse it. And that's not because I'm putting down the ones that aren't, quote, artists. It's because not everybody lots of guys have two of the three or there's four abilities actually there's performance there's ability there's thinking and there's inspiration or feel what you call feel right
2: Mm
1: -hmm. i think if you somebody has all of that it's just graduated to be called an art at that point it doesn't all of a sudden do away with the other one but we we know that you know i've seen many many cats that have like just insanely good ability and they know a heck of a lot about music, but they just can't really think up a song. They're not really good at that, or if they do, it's not something that a lot of people say, wow. But on the other hand, you get the exact opposite. You get guys that write just the most amazing songs, but yet they are not very good at all on their instruments, such as the Beatles.
3: Yeah.
1: no great instrumentalists on the Beatles. So what we have is adequate instrumentalists, but with really good in the third position, the inspirational position and the knowledge of what to do with it. So they still qualify as musicians without necessarily having the ability. So a person can be a musician without being really flashy on his instrument or even being able to be flashy on his instrument. He still can be a musician, not just an instrumentalist. On the other hand, look at the kids that pick up the tablature. Yeah and literally learn note for note how to move their hands as if they're learning typing and they just do everything perfectly but they don't know anything about the music they're doing that does happen right. i've seen a lot of kids that are able to come and play you know the black page <laughs> and they don't know the difference between minor major minor third a fifth or fourth they don't know what that is the right. theory of it so really they're instrumental in it yeah. And I think we tend to confuse the issue when we lump everybody in the same you know, group, and even worse, when we make it a, a good thing or a bad thing. Because it's just a thing. Yeah. It's not good or bad. If you're just the instrumentalist, that's not bad. That's just as good as if you're not. Everybody sort of got their thing. And some guys do three of the four. Some guys do four of the four. Some guys do the last two and not the first two. Some guys do the first two and not the last two. So I think when I look at it like that, it sort of equalizes everybody. It sort of makes everybody able to be in my... Like, anybody can join my band because they're going to bring something that they do. And consequently, people say to me, you know how come you've always got different drummers and you've always got different bass players and they're always guys we never heard of they're never famous people that's because i'm always willing to take anyone into the group and play with him if he's if he at least approaches it from a musician standpoint yeah and not yeah. well, i'm going to be the band cuz we're going to be famous or we're going to be rich or we am going to get the girls or something you know
3: right. that's
1: the wrong motivation
3: yeah. and,
1: and at that point it doesn't matter whether the guy is fast or not fast or sure-handed or not sure-handed or, you know, perfect on his instrument or not perfect on his instrument. None of that matters. What really matters is the whole feel and honesty with which you're going to deliver what you play. And if I'm going to play a, a solo, I hate even calling them solos. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the only solo I do in, in my show is at the end when nobody else is playing. That's <laughs> <laughs> a solo. <laughs> you know, I never, I, I always had a problem with the idea of calling it the solo while you're in a song. It doesn't make sense to me, and we all accept it as if it's the solo, but it's really not a solo. It's an accompaniment. It's a, it's a moment when you get to play some kind of other melody on your instrument that the singer didn't sing. Or the keyboardist didn't play. That's sort of how I look at it. But you know, semantics. We call it a solo, a guitar solo, but it's not. The only solo I do is when the band goes off the stage, I do Electric Reflections of War or I do something alone, the beginning of a tune. That's a solo. Yeah. And there's a tendency for us to look at our favorite guys and think that what they're doing is what the music is about. And I, I think it's a bad tendency. Like, I'll give an example. My favorite guitar player of all time was always Jimi Hendrix. Right. For the originality, for the uniqueness, for the tone, for the sound, for the oddness of it, the right phrases, you know what I'm saying. Jimi yeah. Hendrix is very inimitable. You can't really copy him. And the funny thing about Jimi Hendrix is that He sort of became, you know, after many years, he became the staple of the rock guitar player. You know, look, here's my Jimi Hendrix. And everyone does their their little solo in their Jimi Hendrix fashion, right? But if you look at all those guys that do that, every time they do do that, joking or otherwise, they begin to play really, really fast. But if you look at a Jimi Hendrix catalog of records, you can't find one single song where he played fast. Yeah. And in your mind, you think there's going to be, going, oh, of course he did, of course he did. And when you actually go looking, you don't find it. The fastest thing Jimi Hendrix ever played on vinyl or on tape was four or five notes in the middle of machine gun oh. and a couple in Voodoo Child, uh, long, the long Voodoo Child. Yeah. Jam. That's it. <laughs> Yeah. So where do we get this idea that when we're Jimi Hendrixing,
3: <laughs>
2: we got
1: to do this like wild solo that rises up to the high notes at sixteenth, you know, sixteenth thirty second notes? It's a misconception about what Jimi Hendrix was really actually doing, and that's why he's not imitatable. Yeah, because too many good players don't realize you've got to slow down and play quarter notes to play Jimi Hendrix. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Quarter notes, you know what I'm saying. I do. Well, eighth notes, but the most Foxy Lady, manic depression, you name it. So this is a misconception I think we have, particularly among guitarists. It's not as that problem is not as prevalent among, let's say, bass players or vocalists or keyboarders. But among guitarists, for some reason. There's that stereotypical idea of what a guitar solo is and what a guitar player is doing. And I think that, by and large, we, we, we do ourselves a great disservice by not sitting back for a second and saying, hey, what are we really saying here on the instrument? What are we actually doing? Hmm. And Richie Havens once told me, we were discussing Jimi Hendrix, because he knew him. And naturally, if I met Rich, he was like, wow, you knew Jimmy. Tell me all about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and um, he said to me something very, very interesting. He said to me, well, you know, Jimmy didn't play the guitar. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, he played the amplifier.
3: Yeah.
1: And it really hit home when he said that, because it's true. It was all about the tone, the sound, the, the whole tonal thing about what he was doing. You know, right. the sound He played the amplifier.
0: That makes a lot of sense.
1: If you think about it, when we listen to great... I listen to a lot of jazz. I love jazz. Mm -hmm. And the best jazz that I can listen to is the ones where they're not playing crazy atonal fast line. (laughs) Yeah. I'm talking about what we call late night driving jazz, where you know the pianos are playing chords and some trumpet players going ba 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 ba, you know, yeah, in, in front of it all. That to me is like gives you the time to drink it in and and
3: taste it,
0: yeah. instead of like fast food, you know. I can see where where guitar players uh, make that mistake quite often. I know I know personally myself. I'm guilty of it too, you know. uh, Oh, I was
1: guilty as hell of it all
0: all (laughs) my early life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. but, you know, uh, uh, being able to to take a step back and, you know, thoughtfully, you know, feel and think through, you know, the phrasing and what you're doing and how it all, you know, works together and stuff like that. You know, most guys, they just want to, you know, they want to show off as much as they possibly can in the moments that they got and uh, and kind of take it from there. That was, that was one of the attractions, to me, of guys like, well, let's say, Eric Clapton, for instance. That uh-huh. was the attraction to Eric Clapton for me. It wasn't that I thought he was, you know, the, the most technical player. It was the fact that he played so little, but what he did play was so good.
1: Well, yeah, because guys like Eric and obviously Hendrix and quite a few others. Okay,
0: yeah.
1: Unfortunately, most of them come from the 60s, but you know what I'm saying.
3: Yeah.
1: The very fact that guitar had not yet graduated to be this instrument that anyone could play, it really had not yet done that. It was early in its inception. The approach to it was early. The, the technically best players, were really not that technically as good as, let's say, the 12-year-old today with a tablature. Yeah. They couldn't even... They wouldn't even have thought of doing that. The fact that I started doing that in the early 70s made people freaked out.
3: <laughs> right. Because
1: guys like me just weren't around doing rock music, playing the kind of speed stuff that I was doing back then, 70 and 71.
2: Yeah.
1: So that was a bit different, but guitar itself had not yet graduated to the point where in order to play it and be considered good, you have to be a virtuoso. So what were they doing with their guitars? They were doing with their guitars what instrumentalists had always done in pop and swing music. For years before, they were playing the vocal melodies a little bit differently when they got their break. Mm-hmm. And if you think about songs, that's usually what happens. You've got the singer, he sings the verses, he sings another couple of verses, and then the guitar comes in and basically imitates the music of what the verse was. You know, think of Nowhere Man, you know, and they do the solo in Nowhere Man. It's basically that he's a real Nowhere Man done on the guitar for a, for, a, for a stanza or a verse, right? Mm. And that's how music always was. In other words, when you had sax players taking the, the break, they did that. When you had piano players taking the break, they did that. That's what music always was. So when rock music came around in the 60s and started to be psychedelic music and the, the whole, you know, Summer of Love thing, those guitar players weren't Segovia.
2: <laughs> they
1: didn't have those kind of amazing chops. Yeah. So when the singer, when, when, when Grace Slick would finish her, her, you know, White Rabbit line, then the guitar player would sort of play the line, the, the song of White Rabbit when he got his five minutes, you know, or his five seconds. That was normal. So naturally, Eric Clapton, being in that coming from that background, is doing exactly that. There are people that say that the the solo in "Sunshine of Your Love" is actually a sort of a misrepresentation of the song "Blue Moon." Blue Moon. Da 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 da. It's basically a standard. Wow. But made into a rock way in that key. Wow. So, so that's what we did. That's where I come from. That's my roots. What I did was I started throwing in more of the wild stuff that really, in the beginning, everyone hated me for it. Believe me. okay, <laughs> I was criticized like hell. You, know, you and your pedals and you and your this. It was like I was a bad guy, among other musicians. But it started to become the norm. Yeah. And when it started to become the norm, I started pulling back and doing it less, because I found a method by which I could actually employ a method to make me not do that habit habitually. And it was a really simple method. I was thinking about sax players, whom I happen to very much like, and I was thinking, well, they can't play without taking a breath. So I started playing and then taking a breath. And I started playing only when I was breathing out. <laughs>
3: wow. Wow. And just
1: breathing in and not playing while I breathed in. And that breaks up the phrasing. It starts acting like you're singing it. And the timing becomes like a person speaking. The next step was, okay, now I'm speaking. What am I going to say? Because, listen, I can write, I can write a, a novel with the same alphabet. I can write a good book or I can write a crappy book, but it's all the same alphabet. Just rearrange the letters and you get better words. So the question was, what do I do with my 12 notes, that alphabet, and how do I structure them so that the notes I put together are nicer words rather than just letters. Hmm. And if you think about it, that's how you speak. You don't speak thinking about each letter in a word you said. You hmm. speak as groups. Every word you speak is a group, and then when you group words, they become a paragraph. When you group paragraphs, they become a, a, a well, they become a sentence, and then a paragraph, and then a chapter. No. So my approach to guitar, not just guitar, but how I play drums, because I'm a drummer too, my approach to that is that it's how does a novelist write his book with the tools that he has hmm. with his typewriter, with his alphabet and with his ideas. So we have our typewriter <laughs> guitar hmm. or our drums. We have the fingers that move like on a typewriter, but it has to always start in the mind and then before that, in the inspiration in the soul. The idea, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Because if I get an inspiration, I get an idea. Like, you've had ideas. You go, oh, I just had a great idea. Watch this. And you play it, right? Right. Where'd the idea come from? <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: it's, not, it's not you that made the idea. The idea came from some kind of source somewhere, and you found it. That's why you're amazed. Yeah. That's why you go, Wow. If you'd have thought it up from the beginning and built it, you wouldn't have been saying, wow, you'd have been expecting it. Yeah. And when it's unexpected like that, it means it comes from a higher source, you tune into it, you say, great, now I've got to put it into motion on my instrument. And whether it's, if I get an idea, and I happen to play piano, and I get the same idea, and I happen to play guitar, and I record both versions, if I play them to you, they're going to sound different. They're going to be expressed on a different instrument. Right. I can express a guitar solo that I've had. I can express it on drums. You're not going to know it's the same solo. It's just yeah. being expressed differently. Same idea being expressed differently. So that's my approach, uh, J- uh, James. You know, it's it's like I try to look at it like: Do I want to say anything in the first place? Because sometimes you don't want to say anything anyway. Like you know, you don't always want to write a song or write a book. Mm-hmm. and the reason I left the majors uh, major labels in the 80s was because they were always telling me I had to go back and write a new book even when I didn't want to yeah and, and it starts to become stale
0: so, so, so I started
1: making albums three, five years apart six years apart instead of every seven months right and I'm happy that I did that <laughs> You know, I've been yeah. a happy musician ever since I left them.
0: <laughs> well, that makes sense. So, there's a lot of people that have had those not so good experiences, you know, with the major labels.
1: You well, know. major, minor, yes. Yeah.
3: Look, yeah.
1: we're musicians, right? You're a musician, right? Yep. We just and anybody listening to this probably they're not listening to this if they're into cooking, okay? <laughs> like they're into music, okay? Right. So. We're all musicians. We respect the music because we love music. We can't put our finger on whether it's good or bad or where it comes from. We just know it. It's like kind of like you know it when you hear it, you know? Yeah. And as long as we sort of don't forget that, we'll always, we'll always be rewarded by the craft that we have. But if we start to think that the craft that we have is a vehicle to get something else. Money, fame, girls, whatever, notoriety. We may get that thing we're going for, but we'll lose the reward of the music itself. Mm. And lucky is the guy or girl that's able to maintain the reward of the music and get the other stuff too. I mean, it must have been really nice to be Paul McCartney where the natural thing you do that rewards you musically also happens to be what everybody wants to buy.
3: Yeah. Yeah. There,
1: there are quite a few people like that. They're, they just naturally exude without even trying. They, like Brian, uh, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm can't really write a bad song and he, it just naturally comes out of him so he could just do his natural thing all day and everyone's going to buy it same with mccartney same with billy joel yeah same with elton john same with stevie wonder probably the the uh, mozart of our generation
0: yeah that's why tom but Petty there's would... not
1: that many <laughs> okay yeah. there's not that many you count them on what two hands, three, four hands, you know? Right. And the problem is there's so many others that want to be that. But I think they lose sight of it because they figure now the motivation for doing music in the first place is to be that guy. Instead of just to get it back from the music, just play it and listen to it and get a reward from the fact that you, you did it.
0: Yeah. So I, I got to ask you, Frank, you know, uh, have you always looked at it from this standpoint? You know, um, I mean, or, or what point in time did did your, you know, thought process begin to change in, you know, in view things like this? Because this may, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me because you're exactly right. You know, so many people fall into the pitfalls that keep them from, you know, you know being more you know true to themselves or more expressive or whatever but uh you know so so in the early days of frank marino back in the early 70s and that you know uh, were you thinking in these terms as like you did the four parts you know the
1: yeah well here's what happened <laughs> when they first came to me to sign me to do my first album maximum i was 16 years old yeah. And I refused to do it for a long time. I did not want to do it. It actually came when I was 15 years old. Well, and I did not want to do it because what they wanted me to do to join that system was, went against my philosophy of music, which I'm telling you now. But I'm able to articulate it now.
3: Yeah. I
1: couldn't sit there at 15 and articulate it, but I knew it. I felt that. I go, oh, no, 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 that's not real. Oh, no, no, that's not, you know, that's sort of like intuitively. I'm articulating now what I intuitively knew at 14, 15 years old.
3: Yeah.
1: Then they talked me into doing that first album, Maxum, And they did that by promising us to have equipment, because young kids who are poor don't have equipment. That's what we were.
0: Right. (laughs)
1: So <laughs> I was like, oh, equipment? Okay. Where, where do we record this thing, right? Yeah. It wasn't even about we're making a record, it's going to come out, you're going to be famous. Nobody even said that to me because they knew if they'd have said that to me, I'd have said, go away. Yeah. I was very, very anti-establishment, and I still am. Yeah. So they, typed, they talked me into it. I go on to do Maxoom. Well, the first thing I had to do for Maxum was I had to tune my guitar up to standard pitch. I never tied my guitar to standard pitch. I had it three semitones lower. Wow. And because they wanted a piano player to come in and play on my blues tune, and he wanted to play in the normal key, (laughs) I said, okay, well, I'll have to tune up to E. So that was the very first, you know, compromise. Yeah. And the next compromise was short songs because I was never playing short songs
3: every <laughs> song I ever did was
1: 15 25 minutes when I was when they came to see me to sign me you know people were, were coming to see me play live then I was playing in cornfields I was playing in you know wherever I could with my friends we were playing for free
3: yeah.
1: and there were thousands of people would come well. and I was always just playing these long, drawn out jams never the same thing twice then i go into the studio with this Maxum deal and it was like okay well this song now that song now this song has to be three five minutes four minutes and you start like pulling back and saying well okay uh, i'll try this and i'll put in a little of that and i throw in my own weird oddities too like the opening track was just sound effects okay and And I felt bad about it. When it was all said and done, I felt I didn't want to hear the record. Hmm. Now, I, I liked the songs that I did do, Back On Home and Buddy and all that stuff, but I didn't really want to listen to it once I'd done it. It was almost like not really what I wanted to accomplish, but I did accomplish it. And by that time, I was signed. So when Child of the Novelty came along, I rebelled a little bit. <clears throat> and I said, if I'm going to do any more of these records, you got to let me do more of what I'd like to do. So now you get Child of the Novelty, longer tunes, more solos, more psychedelic stuff, weird stuff, and then Strange Universe even more. Land of a Thousand Nights, stuff like that. Yeah. They never would have had that on back soon. Yeah. But they made one mistake from their own standpoint. The only way that they could get me to sign with them was to tell me that I didn't have to be, to have a producer who told me what to do. Now the idea of letting a 16 year old kid be his own producer in 1970 was unheard of. Hmm. Unheard of. To spend studio money at 150 an hour on an album for somebody and let the 16-year-old be his own producer was something nobody would think of. But they had to do that to get me in. And what ended up happening was they sold my contract to the next record company. It wasn't like I left their record company and then found another record company. I was literally sold like a commodity. Mm. And they made money on that deal, that I made nothing. You know, they sold me like they bought me for a dollar and sold me for 20 right? Yeah. Now, but that contract went with me. So the next company, which was 20th century, they had to abide by that cause of let Frank do his own record. Now it was 17, 18. And then when they sold me to Columbia, they had to abide by it. So for my entire career, I never had a producer. So what I was getting was I was getting an education in recording and production without realizing it. I was becoming a recording producer and an engineer. That's sort of what I was getting out of it. But because I was in that position and call it the catbird seat, they couldn't really tell me what to play or what to do. They could suggest it till, till the cows came home and they did every day. But I would say, no, I'm doing this. No, I'm doing a 19-minute tune. No, I'm doing, you know, I would just do what I wanted. (laughs) Which created a lot of friction.
3: Yeah.
1: So I was, the labels were never my friend. It was argument after argument after argument until finally in 1983, I said, I'm not arguing with you guys anymore, and I'm not staying with you guys anymore. I'm going on my own. And I'll just record when I want to. So in answer to your question, did I know these things then? I knew them intuitively, and as the years went by, I began to learn how to articulate them, not just to you, but to me, to myself.
3: Yeah.
1: The ideas were crystallizing, and I began to see, hey, this is kind of like this, hey, this is kind of like that. And so I'm really telling you what I always knew, but didn't always express properly. Yeah. And a couple of times in the early days, if I could go back now, there's a few things I wouldn't do the same way. There's yeah. a few songs I wouldn't do the same way. Yeah. I know the one thing I wouldn't do, 100%, is I wouldn't spend so much time as I did in the mid-70s playing one, four, five rock blues because Mahogany Rush was never that. And the, look at the early albums. Yeah, There is no one, four, five rock blues, you know, King B, Johnny B. Good stuff. Right. There is none of that. That came later on as a function of playing so many big festivals with other bands that played that kind of music. So I would do that facet of my career. But I wasn't going to get up at Cal Jam in front of 330,000 people and play Look At Me, or, or some of my early psychedelic stuff, which nobody would know what that was. So you get caught into it. You say, well, you know, we're going to play the blues side of me. We're going to play the rock side of me. Yeah. It's still me, but it's that side. It's, not, it's completely ignoring Strange Universe and all the magical stuff from the early record. So when I did this DVD, which has 57 songs on it, I did a 12-hour show that day. And I tried to do all old stuff from the early parts of my career. Stuff I never was able to do live throughout the 70s to any of the the, uh, stadium crowd. And we've got all those songs on, the Requiem for a Sinner, and all the stuff that we never did live.
3: yeah,
1: Or very rarely did. And so I think people are noticing that because... The people who are getting this DVD now are, I mean, I get a lot of email. And they're saying, you should have done this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was a fan, but I had Strange Universe. I had Child and Ulti, I had Mahogany Rush 4. I had World Anthem. Yeah. You know, and and we saw you and, you know, you played Johnny B. Good and King B. Like, <laughs> <Yep>. like <laughs> so now I'm sort of back. I've come full circle in a way. Yeah. And my approach now is, you know, if I go out again and play, it's going to be that. It's going to be. I'm 66. It's 50 years ago I did the uh, the first album. I'll be 66 in November, and I'm just going to go out again and be who I was when I was 16,
3: yeah.
1: and 17, and 18. Because I think that is the essence of what my musical career was supposed to be, and it took a little bit of an odd turn. Not that the turn it took wasn't still me. I still am the guy that does the King bees and the Johnny Goods, and I'm happy to do them. But if you only do that, you're not showing the people the other part of the music, the more introspective stuff. No. It just becomes only rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Now, there's nothing wrong with only rock and roll. But if you've got other things to do and say, you should
3: probably try.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah, I, I know for myself, it was it was definitely some of the early music that uh, is what hooked me uh, myself in that. Um, I actually I actually had uh, tickets to see you uh, in April this year before COVID, and uh, you know because of the whole COVID thing and that. Of course, you never got to come down. <laughs> but
1: uh, well, what you would have seen is very much what you'd see on this
0: dvd yeah well i'm looking forward to to uh to the dvd then because you know um it, it i don't i don't know it was your your style of playing the way that you approach the guitar is was unique to me and i know it's unique to a lot of other people and i know it's been inspirational to a lot of people because you know what? I know a lot of guitar players. I've been in and around a lot of guitar players. And, uh, you know, I get asked constantly when you get an interview Frank. You know, do you know Frank? Have you ever talked to Frank? <laughs> you know, what do you think of Frank? I had one guy one time, this is no lie, and it wasn't that long ago, emailed me a bunch of pictures of your rig from back in the 70s or 80s or whatever. Oh, yeah, a big pedal board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know because you wanted to talk about it because you know a lot of times on the show that's you know the people that I talk with we get into all that kind of stuff and so of course I get a lot of people well, feel free to
1: fire away that anything you want to know about pedals and, and electronics too because you know I build everything myself so I, and I don't have any secrets I'll tell anybody anything
0: yeah I know I know you do it all you know that's one of the things that's that's really uh, impressive you know I got it I, I've always wanted to ask you because I know that you know and I know this is probably a cheesy question but I know that your guitar of choice has is, is been an SG I, I don't think I've ever seen you with anything but an SG so I'm kind of curious as to why that is is it because it just feels good is it because it's comfortable to you or what what is it about it, the SG well
1: interesting question very good it's got a history that question actually an actual history okay um i didn't know what guitars were when i learned how to play guitar in the hospital at 13 um, i was recovering from a bad situation and i basically came out of the hospital as a guitar player before that i had been a kid who played the drums and i couldn't take the guitar that they let me play in the hospital was it belonged to the hospitals, an acoustic guitar. So when I got out, my mother said, oh, okay, if guitar makes you happy, I'll get you a guitar, because they wanted anything for me to get better. And so it ha- just so happened that the very next-door neighbor of the street that we lived was selling a used guitar.
3: <laughs> be done.
1: It was a red guitar. That's what it was. <laughs> oh, You know, buy his red guitar. I don't know if it was a Gibson SG or whatever. Didn't, who knew? Who cared? right the, the neighbor has a red guitar would you like to have it she paid 75 dollars for it and so i got that so that became <clears throat> i'd sit in the room all day because i just i was recovering and i'd just play it and the reason and i tuned the strings way way down because it made it easier to play yeah it wasn't like i was trying to play some kind of you know you hear now today drop d drop c as if it's a fad. I had it drop down just because it made it easier to press the strings. It didn't, it didn't hurt my finger. <laughs> you know, if so I did a bar chord, my thumb didn't hurt. Right. Like I did on the acoustic guitar. And so that became the guitar I played. Unfortunately, what happened was one day I, I, I did a stu- really stupid thing and I went into my room where my, I had the same room in my, with my older brother, and I, I bumped into his stereo, and he says, hey, sell off my stereo, and he said something like that to me. So I took his stereo, and I threw it on the bed like an idiot. Well, he took the guitar, and he threw the guitar, because <laughs> at those days, it was just like, you know, that's your stereo, that's your guitar, that's your thing. He didn't mean to break it or anything, but it was like, you know, a brother does one thing, you push, you push back, right? And the guitar broke. So now I needed another guitar. It didn't even, I didn't care that it broke. It wasn't like, oh no, you broke my guitar. It was just, for all intents and purposes, it could have been, uh, I don't know, anything. My uh, bicycle, you know? Yeah. So now I needed another guitar. So what did I know about guitars? Well, we went down and found another guitar and it was another, I said, I want a red one like I had. It's just got another same thing (laughs) to a pawn shop. I had this red guitar. Look, this is what it looks like. It's cracked, blah, blah, blah. You got another one? Yeah, okay, here's another one. Boom, and paid the guy, and that was my next guitar. (laughs) So that's how I ended up with BSGs. Then the career started to happen, and just as the early, early career was happening... And by the way, I should tell you this. People shouldn't think badly of my brother Norm for doing that. It was really my fault, you know? (laughs) I'm the guy that started it, you know? Yeah. But in any case, um, while my career's starting, we're playing in a cornfield somewhere, and it starts raining, so we run for a tent to hide, and when we come back, my guitar was stolen. Oh. So now we need another guitar!
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> so
1: I went back to the same pawn shop and said, hey, you know that red guitar you sold me? Yeah. You got another one? Yeah, here. <laughs> it was another red SG. Anyway, the second SG that was stolen ended up coming back to me 12 years later, but that's a whole other story. Wow. But that's where the SG's started. Yeah. And then you get into the record, and you start playing, and then you realize that your favorite guitar players, they don't play these red guitars. Jimmy like, Jimi Hendrix became my favorite guitar player, and he played some weird guitar called a Stratocaster. I didn't know what that was. It sounded like the name of a car. <laughs> and and so I go to a music store one day, and I, I says, oh, there's that Jimi Hendrix guitar on the wall. Hey, I, why don't I buy one of those just to see what it feels like? So I bought this 62 Stratocaster, and I didn't really feel comfortable playing it, especially standing up, because straps in a different place and it hangs really funny and doesn't have all the frets and you can't reach the high notes because the body's in the way so i really rarely played it i would play it like when i wanted to play stuff in the first position you know low down on the neck you know
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and even on my albums i would take it out to do some rhythm tracks because rhythm tracks are usually played down at the low position you know and um that sort of became how i got into playing the Stratocaster once in a while I loved the sound of it but I didn't like the way it spelled yeah. and then the same thing happened I got a Telecaster and they did the same thing with that and I still have those Strat and Teles like today they're as, they're as unused as they were then <laughs> in 1970 69 yeah. you know so in answer to your question the SG just became the easiest guitar to play yeah. And I never really wanted to play anything else because I didn't want to have to work hard to play music.
3: Hmm.
1: The whole thing about playing music was supposed to be not work hard. Hmm. I never practiced ever. Really? <laughs> I didn't even know how to practice. If I practice, you could call practicing playing with guys. You could call that practicing. Let's go to band practice or whatever. Just meant you were going to a little jam. Yeah. But no one, I never sat down and I wouldn't even know how to sit down and practice scales or reach or
3: movements
1: or whatever. I wouldn't know how to do that. It's like, is there even a method? So I played a lot, but I don't have a practice thing. And I wouldn't do it anyway because it's too much work. And enjoying your music shouldn't be work.
0: So are a lot, of,
1: like, work, a lot of other things you can work on besides music.
0: <laughs> so so are you saying that the only time that you that you really picked it up and played it was when you were in a band setting? No. Oh, okay. I was
1: always playing it okay. with people. I got it. <laughs> they didn't have to be in my band. I got it. In those days people got together with their guitars or their drums or whatever it was at their friend's house, the same way people today get together, kids get together to go to their friends to play with a PlayStation. Yeah. But they don't bring their PlayStations over to their friend's house so that they could learn to be programmers. That's not their intention of playing with their PlayStation with their friends. Right. They're doing it just to have fun, to escape.
3: Yeah. And...
1: That that's we didn't have PlayStations. We didn't have hardly we didn't have color TV for crying out loud. There right. <laughs> had three stations on the television and nothing on the radio. So it was like you know FM radio only started playing you know FM style songs in like 1969.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. So there was nothing to do when you got up in my day. When you got up in the morning, wasn't even morning, but ten in the morning, noon, whatever. When you got up. You didn't sit in the house. You immediately left the house.
3: Yeah. You didn't
1: come back to the house till it was time to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nobody was hanging around their house. So you'd go out, you'd say, I'm going to go to Bobby's place or I'm going to go to Joe's place or we're going to go, hey, let's set up our guitars on, in the backyard and play the music there. Let's go to the park and get a circle of friends all look like a bunch of hippies and you're all playing, singing songs, you know, popular tunes. That's how we had fun. So why would you ever think that you would do that in a way of working style? Like, we're going to go get better at it and work at it. That makes no sense. All of a sudden, it's not fun. Yeah. My mentality was, and still is, if it isn't fun, well, don't do it. To this day, there's not a guitar in my house that's in the case. Because if I want to play, I don't want to have to go and get something out of a case and tune it up. I just want to pick it up and play. Yeah. So I've got a guitar in one room and a guitar in another room and a guitar in another room, and if I want to play, just grab it and I play it. If it's too much work, I don't want to play it.
2: Huh.
1: That's, my, that's my approach. Make it easy. Make it as easy as you can. I use light, light strings so that I don't feel them. Consequently, I had to become an electronics expert to build amplifiers that boosted the sound because with light strings, it sounds like a banjo. Yeah.
3: You
1: know? And and so I get around it that way. But look, guys, you know, anybody listening to this, I always say this. Use your ears, not your eyes. Listen. Learn to listen to the guys you're playing with. It's the most important thing of all. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like you would do in a conversation, you listen, and when you get your chance to speak, say something worthwhile.
0: Yeah, that's really good advice. Really good advice. And if you don't know
1: how, use the tricks. Play only when you breathe out. (laughs) Start using the tricks. It'll become second nature after a while. Really? Really? Yeah, it becomes totally second nature. Think about a horn player. He has to breathe out to play.
3: Yeah.
1: A trumpet player, a trombone player, a saxophone player. Anybody playing a wind instrument cannot play while he's sucking in. He has to take breath. Yeah. And even a violinist has to change the direction of his bow. Yeah. So guitar, unfortunately is one of the few instruments in which you can accompany yourself. Everything else is monophonic. So piano, guitar, harp, perhaps vibe, you know, keyboard-style instruments, Mm -hmm. you can accompany yourself. But every other instrument, the violin you can't accompany yourself, cellos, you know, everything's single sound. And so you need other players to play with. And because you can accompany yourself on a guitar or a piano, you do tend to fall into the trap of overdoing it. Hmm. You don't. you're not listening as much to the other guy because you're playing a chord and there's six notes in it or at least three that are repeated. So you're sort of already hearing what you need to hear. So it promotes this idea that you don't need to listen to the other guy. And you end up going off on a tangent. But if you listen to the other guy, you're going to play really, really good lines. Because what he does is going to inspire you to do something different every time you get a chance to do a line.
0: It's hmm. really good advice. You know, it, it, it's rare to hear somebody talk in terms like that, Frank. It really is, you know. Um it really is. Well, I
1: think it's. Don't you agree, though, that it's kind of intuitive? It's kind of common sense. It's kind of a common sense approach. It, huh. Anyway, from my point of view, I think it's pretty natural. Yeah. I think it's what I think it's what people would do if they just stop for a second and and think about it.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. I'm not like inventing anything new. I'm I'm basically reminding myself of what I already knew. Right. <laughs> you know, all my life.
0: Well, if I, if I take a step back and I look at you know some of the people that I would consider really great players and typically the people that I I pay attention to are usually not the ones that are on the covers of the magazines and the ones getting all the attention. And they're they're usually guys that are focused on on their phrasing. They're they're focused on the entire song as a and and when they get their moment, of course, like you just said, you know, speaking their 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 phrases to to fit into you know accompany everything else that's going on and I, I find those guys one of those guys is and you probably know him is Mark Goldenberg. Uh-huh. Mark, Mark Goldenberg is one of those guys that can you know he he knows how to phrase he knows when to talk and when not to talk you know he knows. He's paying attention to everything that's going on, and I really admire players like that because it's it's really difficult. Because for guys like me that grew up in the in the '70s, when you know when I feel that you know guitar music was really great, uh, it was it, it got to the point to where it was just you know just like I forgive me for using these terms. The guitar became diarrhea, of the, you know, the mouth. It's just like, bleh, it's yeah. all, all out there. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know? Sure.
1: sure. And look, among the very famous ones, there are guys like this dude, that do know how to phrase Like, for instance, Mark Knopfler, Dire Straits. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. This guy, can. he plays the right thing at the right time, and yeah. it's not always over the top. Larry Carlton. Yes. Another guy that does it. It's more jazzy, but he does do it, yes. right? Yeah. Um, the guy for, uh, what's the name, the guy that has the thing with his wife um, today, he's a blues player, plays with a slide.
0: Oh, Derek Trucks. Yeah, Trucks. Yeah.
1: So, this is the right notes at the right time when yeah. it comes in. There are guys today that do that. Yeah. Tommy Emmanuel is, is one of the guys that, and I think the, the, you call it the best, the best in the world, because he has, sort of has everything. He's got the rhythm, he's got the timing, he's got the surefoot, foot, he's got amazing stuff to do with his hands, and he does it under an acoustic guitar. Never yeah. mind an amplifier. You know, there are guys that do do that. The problem is, there's a plethora of guys that don't do that, and it and the other guys are kind of buried in the in the in the background.
3: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: It's almost like if you went to a rest, a restaurant in a cafeteria and you're trying to pick out a conversation, and all you end up getting is snatches of every conversation.
3: Yeah.
1: You know, it's you're not really getting any conversation. Maybe someone sitting right next to you is saying something really interesting, and that you get to hear. But if the guy saying something interesting is 16 tables away, you might hear the odd word. Yeah. And it gets lost. Mm. And don't think that that only happens in the public way. That happens among musicians, too. I've been in many, many situations with some of the, you know, the cream of the crop musicians, and they, too, make that diarrhea problem. Yeah. Many. Yeah. And what do I do when that happens? I'll tell you what I do. I just stop. Sometimes you get invited to a jam. And it happens to be one of those jams that's just like a dog's breakfast. Everyone's playing over everyone else. <laughs> I just basically I just stop. I just don't play. Yeah. Because anything I do is just going to make it worse. It's the one reason I never liked doing the G3, you know, those tour, those guitar tours there yeah. that had 18 different guys and in tw- 10 minutes each and then they all jam together. Now, the 10 minutes each part, I don't mind, but when they all jam together, oh, my gosh.
3: Yeah.
1: They're not jamming. They're not inventing. They're, they're waiting for their chance to do their solo. Yeah. And there's that word again, solo, you know? And I just don't want to be, I don't want to do that. Hmm. How many times did I get on a, on a band stage, you know, because after a gig, sometimes you go to the local hotel and there's a band playing and you say, hey, can we sit in or can I sit in with you? You know, nobody knows about it. You're just doing it to have fun, right? Yeah. And how many times have I said to those guys, "Don't do not announce I'm playing with you. Do not do my songs. I want you to do all the songs you would be doing if I wasn't here and let me sit in the back and try to fit in as if I'm not there. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah, That's the most fun. Even if I don't know the tune, just let me sit in and listen and play along with it. That's that's the most fun I've ever had playing guitar. That kind of situation. Yeah. And to this day, when I'm on tour, my favorite time of day is sound check. Because hmm. I always get there early. I, am assuming I get one. If I'm headlining, I get a sound check. If I'm not, they never give me one. But but if I if I'm headlining a gig, and it's my own gig. I get to get there at two o'clock in the afternoon, and I literally play from two o'clock till the doors open. Wow. And then I go do my show at night. Yeah. yeah, that's my favorite time because in the sound check, holy crap! If you walked into one of my sound checks, you'd hear songs you would never believe we would play, and they're not just mine. You know, I, I'm 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 really a big fan, personally, of of doing other people's music. That's way more fun for me than doing my own tune. Interpreting a song someone else wrote or played, and it might not even have to be a guitar tune, is way more fun for me as a musician than, okay, I'm gonna do Dragonfly, I'm gonna do Juggernaut, I'm gonna do you know. Because think about this. If you go to a if you go to a family reunion or a New Year's Eve party with the family or Christmas or whatever, and there's a piano and Uncle Joe or Uncle Bob gets on the piano and starts, you know, playing stuff. Nobody says, play your originals.
2: Right. <laughs>
1: okay. Right. If I picked up a guitar at someone's and we're going to start singing Mr. Tambourine Man or whatever everybody knows, or even We Will Rock You, nobody says, no, no, play your originals. That's just not going to be fun for anybody. Yeah. And even if you were Paul McCartney, no one would tell him, play your originals. And neither would he do it. He'd be there doing old Lang Syne and everything else.
3: Yeah, that's and funny. This
1: is where music is really the fun part, when you can just use it as that, that means of communicating with people and smiling and having them smile back at you because of the sound or the feeling that it gives you. Then rather than performing and... Having people
0: say, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've always, you know, I um, I put out nine albums. And, uh, you know, I've had experience on labels, not major labels, but, you know, smaller labels. and uh, But I've always tried to do other people's stuff more than my own as well. Um, I, I like that, too you know I I like interpreting somebody else's uh, music uh, probably a lot more than I, I like coming up with my own stuff and doing my own stuff as well and still to this day you know when I when I play you know like I'm playing Saturday I got two shows at a theater in central Illinois and you know out of all that you know two shows I'll do two songs three songs that might be mine and I'll You know, but I I, I find myself doing the obscure stuff that, you know, isn't the stuff that people are used to listening to. You know, it's very rare you get somebody go, hey, was that, you know, by so and so? Because a lot of people don't know, you know, the songs, but I really enjoy doing that. You know, my last EP, you know, only had one original on it and, you know, and I did somebody else's stuff, but I enjoy it. I like it so much more. I don't know if that's bad, but...
1: Do you remember the the band Vanilla Fudge? Yeah, oh yeah. Their whole thing was all covered.
0: Yeah. Every song. Yeah, you're exactly right.
1: Interpreted as they would interpret it. Yeah. Carmine and those guys. So, look, until the Beatles came along, prior to the Beatles, nobody did their own songs. Yeah. Ever. Didn't happen. Yeah. It was perfectly normal for an artist, the greatest, the less greatest, whoever they were, Tony, Bennett, Frank Sinatra, you name it, to do songs they didn't write. Yeah. It was normal. That's why we have publishing laws. Yeah. To make sure yeah. the writer got something and the musician got something. That's why they're there. They were written into the law hundreds of years ago. So, But then the Beatles come along and they just happen to be performers who also write their own music. Now every record company said no, we gotta have guys that write their own music. Yeah. So now every musician thought that they should be writing their own music. Mm. Well let me tell you something. As good as some musicians are, not everyone is a great writer. Yep. It's just, it's not an insult to tell you tell them that. Look, we all read books. Any one of us can write a story. Right? Mm-hmm. Nothing hard about writing a story. We're not all great novelists.
2: <laughs> right.
1: It's, it, and no one would be insulted if you wrote a story and you said well it, you know it isn't quite as good as you know edgar Allan poe you'll mm. be okay yeah i know it isn't you know yeah we're not all novelists that's a talent to be a writer who's a novelist to be good a wordsmith if you want to call it that and there's nothing wrong with that but for some reason the industry began to think, well, unless you're a good writer too, you're nobody. <laughs> yeah. So they had to populate all these record companies with a bunch of guys who just by nature aren't great writers. And mm-hmm. then they had to sell it to the world telling them the song was better than it is. Yeah. And so started the what I call the P.T. Barnum method of building the music industry <laughs> you know he made a lot of money telling people it was the greatest show on earth yeah. and people would say oh it's, i heard it's the greatest show on earth wow i'm going to the greatest show what did he really have a couple of bearded ladies some freaks and a
0: <laughs> couple elephants running around yep.
1: yeah so you can tell people stuff and they're going to go flocking to it the industry, the music industry started saying, have you heard this artist? Oh, this is the best. Oh, this artist will blow your, oh, wow, it's amazing. And then they pay the, the AM radio to play the song over and over and over and over again. And they're basically, what do you call it? Not hypnotizing, but when you talk something and talk somebody into something, there's a word for that, you know, they're basically doing that. Yeah. you know, how you know that it's worked on you Was when that... you say yeah I didn't like that song at first but it kind of grew on me <laughs> and you don't know why
0: yeah.
1: that's when you were you know what the word is I can't remember it right now
0: <laughs>
1: brainwashed
0: brainwashed there <laughs> you go yeah.
1: that's how you know you're brainwashed yeah. when you didn't like it and then you did yeah you heard it so much and then you did it kind of grew on me
3: yeah
1: so the industry was expert at doing that they hired people who knew how to do that yep. promotion men
3: Yeah.
1: madison avenue they figured if you could sell somebody on the idea that a burger made in 30 seconds was as good as a steak dinner you could make a lot of money <laughs> And they did. We called it fast food. Yeah. Not that the fast food isn't good. To some people it's fine. And I eat it too. But to try to equate it as the best meal you ever had would be something disingenuous.
3: Right. And
1: the industry is very, very good at doing that. Very, very good. They're experts. That's what they do. Hmm. People... if all you ever heard on a radio station, if you went to an island where there was one radio station and they only played ten songs, at some point you'd like all those songs, and then at some point after you'd hate all those songs.
3: <laughs> but it
1: can change your mind one way or the other. It can.
0: So i got to ask you, Frank, uh, you know, do you have plans once you know, once things change with the whole you know, outcome of COVID well, and stuff like that? Do you have yeah, plans? Yeah, I, get I back?
1: was look I was supposed to go out in April. Yeah. Then they said no. I said, What do you want me from me? Okay, we moved it to September. We're supposed to go out in September, it's fully ready to go. And then a couple of states said I couldn't get in. Yeah. So now I couldn't go. Now we move it to next September.
3: Yeah.
1: I don't know what they're gonna do.
3: Yeah.
1: But I'm ready to go. I'm ready I'm locked and loaded and ready to go. I've been ready to go since January. You know? Yeah. So this whole thing I, I suspect it's gonna end and everything's gonna get back to normal and sooner than people think. And then we're gonna go. Hopefully.
0: <laughs> right.
1: But who knows, who knows at this point, you know, like who knows if someone's going to come up with a new idea, but why, why we can't go, you know,
3: Yeah. who
1: knows what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, gasoline might jump to six bucks a gallon and then I can't go. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, it's really, it's really something that I have no control over. All I have is the willingness to do it. Yeah. And I'll do it like I've always done it. There's nothing special. So I worked on all my gear, and I fixed all my pedals, and, you know, redid my amps, and said, I might as well clean out those old tubes, (laughs) and, you know, I did all that stuff. (laughs) Actually, I'm glad I did, because I found problems that probably would have quit on me on the tour. Yeah. Got rid of that, and, you know, fixed my preamp up a little, and... So I saw, found a tear in my speaker. Oh, good thing I found that, you know? Yeah. And I'm still, I'm just ready to ready to rock, but who knows what's going to happen. And and quite honestly, I, I, at this point, I don't even know who will come with me.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, everyone says they'll come with me, but what if they say, well, no, we don't want to do it anymore? I got to find other guys. Right. I hate doing that.
0: Yeah. That's always the worst.
1: But it's, it's, it's also very easy to get in my group.
3: Yeah.
1: Like I don't have a criteria, hard criteria to join my band. Yeah. Drummers probably have to be really something because I'm a, a drummer and I sort of want to be able to have the guy do anything. But the other guys, man, it's like, hey, man, if you can listen and you can play and you can find your way through it, I don't care if you make some mistakes. Big deal. Who cares? Who gives a crap, you know?
3: Yeah.
1: Oh, so you miss a note. Okay. Tomorrow you won't. Like, that's the way I look at it.
3: Yep.
1: No, I miss a lot of notes. <laughs>
3: so, <laughs>
0: well, it's hard that to doesn't tell. matter. Huh? I said it's hard to tell sometimes.
1: Well, you know, it's... It, you know, when you play guitar... You know that if you if you play the wrong note for a split second, you can slide up one fret or down one fret, and you'll be in the right note somewhere.
3: <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. right.
1: Happens real cle- real quick, right?
3: Yeah. A little
1: slur, you know, A little slur. Oops, slur. <laughs> Everyone thinks you did it on purpose. You know what that's like.
3: Yeah. yeah you
1: can't be wrong two notes in a row, like because if you just move to one the next fret, that's some in some of the part of the key you're in. Yeah. No matter what. How wrong can you be?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, and
1: besides, yeah. those little things, when they get in there and you fix them up like that quickly, sounds like you did it on purpose and sounds like a great line.
3: Yeah.
1: Wow, what a cool line. I got to learn that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I got news
1: for you. I heard myself do mistakes, like when we'd be recording and you come back in and you, you listen to the playback, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a total mistake, like not just a chord or whatever, but the wrong slur on the guitar. And it was like, Hey, why didn't I think of that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that actually works. Yeah. yeah. Why didn't
1: I think of that? That's 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 great. I gotta learn the mistake now. Yeah. You know? Make sure I don't don't forget to do the mistake. <laughs> yeah.
3: Wow. Well That's that t- a
1: cool part of it, James. That's what's cool.
0: Yeah.
1: End of the day we're all just the kids we were when we started.
0: Yeah, well, I wasn't a kid when Everything I started. Remember when started? Remember? I wasn't a kid, you know. I, I you remember know,
1: what it felt like.
0: I well, yeah, <laughs> it was fun. It, it well, yeah, it was it was kind of fun, you know. I I always wanted to be a guitar player when I was young, grade school, junior high, high school. I always wanted to be a guitar player, but I wasn't ever willing to to do anything to you know. To, to, to actually do it or to be good at it or anything like that. I'm, the, I'm that guy that had a guitar in the corner with an amp. you know what I mean and every now and then wow. I'd you know turn it on but I it sounded horrible and 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 because it sounded horrible, I would just leave it in the corner. It wasn't until I was I was in my 20s, late 20s, and I decided that I wanted to play guitar, not just play guitar, but I wanted to do it for a living, because I had always absolutely, everybody that I was, you know, I don't want to say idolized, but everybody that I admired were guitar players, and there, I was always drawn to the guitar, and so uh, I bought a guitar like, like, kind of like what you did, I got it, went at a pawn shop, I got a I got a Squire Strat and a PV Amp at a pawn shop, and um, I was working n- uh, nights, late nights, and so I would play, n- not real. I don't know if you call it playing, I would do whatever I got to do in order to try to make something out of this guitar, come out of it, and I just, I wouldn't put it down. You know, I had it in my hands for hours and hours and hours, and then at one point in time, uh, I convinced some local guys to get in a band And uh, the guy who uh, was the drummer in that band, his name was Kevin Johnson. And at that time, Kevin was playing drums for Buddy Guy because I live outside of Chicago. And he was playing Ah. drums for Buddy Guy. And then he started taking me up to Chicago and he started introducing me to people and putting me in situations, which I think was the best thing for me because kind of like what you said earlier, you know, I got an opportunity to be around uh, other people that you know, just wanted to play and it kind of catapulted me, you know, to uh, to really wanting to I don't want to say hone skills, but I, I wanted to be better, you know, I wanted to be able to stand right. it, on it that. It puts stage. you
1: it puts you in on the hot seat. In other words, yeah. you're playing with guys that are better than you are. Oh yeah. And you and you get your chance to get in there, you end up being better. it yeah. it, it, it can't, you can't help it. We see that with hockey teams. I'm a hockey fan. A great player makes his line mates better. Yeah. It, it's it's and it happens in sport, it happens in many many things. Yeah. You, if you play with good people, even if you're not a great player, you will become better. You you can't help it. Yeah. Rising as they say, rising tide floats all boats.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: and, and and if you if you get on that tide, you'll float with them. You won't sing. That's why you ended up doing what you did. If you hadn't have found those people to do that with you, you might have still had the guitar sitting in the corner and hating the way it sounded.
0: Yeah. Exactly. it wasn't your
1: friend at the time.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things that I tell people, because, you know, I get tons of emails and messages and stuff like that, you know, uh, because of the podcast and, you know, and everything that I do when it comes to the guitar and that. And I always tell people when they ask me, I said one of the best things that you can do is surround yourself with people that are much better than you, because you know you're gonna you're gonna be forced, or you're gonna be educated, or you're gonna be you know drawn to uh, to improve. You know, you'll either get better or, or you'll kind of wither away. I guess I don't know, but I think it's good advice. So I don't play bass, Frank. You know, I mean I can, but I don't but uh, if your bass player doesn't show up for gigs, I'm going to get a bass, and since you don't care who <laughs> plays with you, I'm going to call you.
1: <laughs> okay. That sounds
0: good. It'll be educating. That sounds good. No, oh, no, it won't be good at all. You know that. It'll be fun, but it won't be good. You know, You know. I appreciate, Frankie. you taking this time. I've really enjoyed talking to you um, because... Um, I, I don't know. You you just you you went down a path that I wasn't really wasn't wasn't really thinking about going, but it turned out to be, you know, it's it's really uh, inspirational. And uh, what do
1: you uh, what are you using, James, as your as your axe and as your amp and as your pedals?
0: Well. Um, Frank, I got I got more than I know what to do with. Uh, my my main rig that I play out with, I use a uh, Fouche Overdrive uh-huh. or a Fouche um, uh, Full House 50. I play through a Mesa Boogie uh, 212 uh-huh. typically. Um, sometimes if I run a stereo rig, I'll use the Fouche rig with the Mesa Boogie, and I'll use a 2-Rock. I got the TS-1 okay. or the Classic. A uh, reverb, and I'll run it also through either a Marshall two twelve or a um, uh, Mesa Boogie two twelve. I like the vertical slant two twelves that they do. And yeah. so th- those are typically, even though I've you know I've got a ton of amps, I've got some Marshall Plexi stuff, and I've got you know some Mesa Boogie stuff like the Lone Star and the Mark II and stuff like that. The Foosh and the Two Rock are typically my main. Uh, amps that i like to play out with Uh, as for guitars to be honest i've always been a fender guy Uh, but last year i turned around and i bought a ibanez prestige you know one of the japanese ones yeah and i absolutely love it it it's uh it's a great guitar it's
1: weird though for you to go from fender to ibanez because fender has that nice you know tight radius on the neck and i bet it's as flat as a pancake (laughs) like the neck becomes so much flatter
0: it is it is is different you know and like i said i've always played a strat and a tele. um i i I use a les paul sometimes i have a couple of sgs um i have an sg that i modified there's a guy in in uh, new jersey that has a company called the Jersey Shore Guitar Garage, and he makes custom wiring harnesses. And I put this 21-position push-push wiring harness system in my SGs, and uh, they sound great. But unlike you, I don't like the way they feel on me, and so uh, so I typically don't play them. I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't know why, but I just don't like the way they feel on me. I like the fact that they're light, and I like. I like the tone that you can get with, uh, with an SG, but I just don't like the way they feel. So, and then when it comes to pedals, I mean, it really goes all over the place. Um, I, I use a, um, the boss FET preamp. Oh yeah. I use it. I use a Univox. I'm not a Univox, but a Univive from full tone. Uh, I've got one of the, uh, early models of the octaver you know from uh from boss as well one of the early days and then when it comes to overdrive i use the uh, free the tone um Uh i use their fire mist and i use the ethos um, Uh that's made by robbie hall or the overdrive or the clean fusion one of the two i use a clon sometimes Oh. oh yeah And then uh, for delays, I like the Flight Time by Free the Tome, but I also like the Strymon Timeline and the Wampler uh, Tape Echo. Ah. And then I'll use a couple of um, uh, EQs. I like the EQ after my overdrives. I don't know, kind of clean it up a little bit. The the preamp has an EQ on it too, which I like. And then I use an EQ as my uh, boost pedal. Another that, that's, that's a lot of money
1: you're playing through, my
0: friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, that's a lot of money. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I got around. Those two rocks,
1: those two rocks are not inexpensive. Okay, it's like all of that stuff you're mentioning is not cheap. No, you
0: know? it, it's not. You know, uh, but you know, I played and I played and I toured for 17 years, and then in 2012 I stopped. And uh, I did my last show in Hollywood with uh, Billy Branch. I don't know if you're familiar with Billy Branch, the harmonica player. Uh-huh. But uh, we did a show at the El Portal Theater in North Hollywood. And that was my last show in 2012. I pretty much put it all away. And I went into, uh, I got a corporate job as an executive for a national company. And that's, that's what I did. And then I did my radio show for a few years and then last year, I got the itch to play again, and so I did an, I did an EP, which was my ninth one, and I did it with uh, Johnny Gripart on bass, who played with Slash and Richie Kotzen, and uh, Michael Leisure, who was Walter Trout's drummer, And, and so I, I did a, I did a CD, and then the whole COVID thing happened, and everything kind of fell apart, and that's when I got the idea to uh, jump back into radio and do the podcast. And I, I'm like everybody else. I'm waiting for things to, to clear up. I mean, I've done a few shows. I've played a, a couple of times a month, you know, over the last couple of months. And um, but you know, I'm hoping to go back in the studio in January and re-record and get back out there. But uh,
1: do you get a lot of people for your podcast?
0: Uh, there's over a hundred and thirty thousand people that listen right now. That's good. I started it July first, believe it or not. Mm. And so, uh, but you know, um, you know, I've I've been in marketing and advertising, so I, I know how to push this stuff pretty good. And and I, you know, pretty diverse in who I have on the show. You know, uh-huh. I've. Um, you know, I've got a lot of great... I've had, you know, like uh, Steve Lukather and Larry Carlton, Robin Ford, and, you know, a variety of other people that were on my regular radio show. And then this time around, I got a lot of those same people lined up, Orianti and Kurt Fletcher and, um and Is know. it
1: mostly that you'll talk about gear and stuff? Or
0: well, you works? know what, Frank? It, it, it's just like this. I try. I try not to make it an interview. I try to just have a conversation and I usually get where I need to go with that conversation, and some people, that's what we talk about is their gear, some people will talk about their history, you know, and then some people, you know, it goes into a variety of other things, it's never the same, but um, but the people that are tuning in, for the most part, you know, most of them are, are players, you know, there are people that either play guitar, or learn guitar, or been around it, fascinated by it, whatever it is, because I have builders, I have guitar builders, I have amp builders, I have, you know, pedal builders, I have, I've had instructors from Berkeley, you know, and then I get a variety of artists across all genres of music to get a, a deep perspective in that, and, uh, and then of course, you know, I try to touch on some people that I find fascinating people that have influenced me, like yourself. You know, um, I try to have people like that as well because, you know, uh, to me that's it's a real treat to be able to to have a conversation with you and other people like you. To pick who
1: who were your influences, James?
0: uh, Well, as I said a minute ago, you you were one of my biggest influences for sure. Buck Dharma from Blue Oyster Cult was a big influence of mine you know um yeah you know so uh yeah you know and then as time went on you know my my influences really changed because was a lot of the rock bands guitars from the 70s were were probably my thing Hendrix of course was was an influence but then as time went on my I started broadening you know my my perspective you know what I listened to and I started listening to you know, to jazz and contemporary jazz and country and, and different stuff. And so, like, right now, if I had to say, you know, who are the people that I pay attention to the most, you know, Andy Timmons is probably one of the guys that I pay attention to a lot. You know, um, um, uh, Martin Miller, uh, Tom Quayle, Josh, uh, Josh Smith, you know, uh, Sean Tubbs. You know, uh, people like that are people that, you know, they're really, they're, to me, they're just fascinating players. You know, Robin Ford, of course, has always been one of mine. So, you know, it's kind of eclectic. It's all over the map for oh, me. Oh, that's good. You know? it's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's changed, you know, who I am as a player because in the early days, all I did was blues. All the people I played with, like Buddy Miles and Chaka Khan and junior wells and i played with all the the chicago cats you know like lefty diz and buddy guy and oh. nate turner and all that kind of stuff and uh, you know those were my main influences so i did blues for a really really long time and then in two- i
1: like i love to play blues yeah okay like blues is the kind of thing where you can play 55 bars but i don't want to listen to it all night right <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'm that way, too. Yeah.
1: I'm
0: that way, too. You know, too.
1: it's like, okay, uh, I, heard the, I heard the slow blues, I heard the fast blues, I heard the mid-time blues, mid-tempo blues, and now I'm done. But if you're playing it,
3: yeah,
1: you just want to go on and on. It's just, it's just But I try to play blues very differently than most people play it.
3: Yeah. I
1: try to, like, I, I like to use a lot of sort of jazz passing chords and 16-bar blues instead of 12, and,
2: right. you know,
1: that's my my way of approaching blues it always was that i i really don't like 12 bar straight up blues yeah like tonic only. only yeah. i just not that i don't like it but i really it doesn't do anything for me you
0: yeah. know well your version of play the blues for you that you did for uh mike varney for his label mm-hmm. that was the best version mm-hmm. of that song i've ever heard and it's it's because of those jazzy riffs that you put in there it's because of that influence that you uh and that interpretation of the song I mean it was I mean it's completely different than of course how Albert King did it and how anybody I've ever heard do it you know what I mean it's same with same with the way you did you know some of the the Hendrix stuff like when like in All on the Watchtower the part in All on the Watchtower that always fascinated me is that at one point in time you did this this octave thing you know uh-huh. what I mean? Where you did this octave work and you know, something that you wouldn't normally hear in that song or, or in one of his right. songs in that and uh, that that was the for me, you know, those are the kinds of things that really stand out to me that you know, that are the things that influence me or or push me to try something different in that. But yeah, you only heard... it was
1: the only time I've covered it, I covered a few tunes in my life, but not as many as people think. I've only covered about nine tunes. Yeah. But, but, um, the only one that I, I really changed, I, I changed two tunes that I covered and completely changed them. I don't normally do that. I try to keep the original a little bit like it was, you know, what the tune is, you know, like in Watchtower. But, uh, but I changed Norwegian wood. Yeah. Very much. And I changed red house. Yeah my my version of red house on real live and it's also on the dvd is just you know if you didn't call it red house then why are you calling it red house
3: because it's not <laughs> red house at all yeah. <laughs> you know
1: it's another blues tune that just happens to have those lyrics yeah but that's that the very few times that i've said i'm gonna literally change it up were those two uh, tracks i think everything else i ever did whether it was roadhouse blues or you know, so they always sort of sound like a, an expression of the original. Yeah. And um, and I think it should be usually that, an expression of the original. After all, why hijack it from somebody, right? Right. But in the case of, um, of Norwegian Wood, that was accidental. <laughs> yeah. and in the case of Red House, it was accidental. So both times I've really changed the tunes, it was totally by accident.
0: Yeah, well, you know, they were great. <laughs> but your phrasing in Can't uh, uh, Play the Blues for You, I mean, it was it was a game changer for me at, at that point in time you know, as a player. It was like, you know, because I'd never heard anybody approach that song or those types of songs with that type of phrasing. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some cats, you know, like Robin Ford and stuff like that that can do some really cool jazzy stuff over some blues things, but... You know, being a huge Albert King fan like I was and doing a lot of his music back in those days, to hear that kind of phrasing in that song was just, it was like, wow. <laughs> you know? Well, I always
1: liked Albert King, okay? Yeah. And when I first heard Albert King was long after I had been actually playing, you know, like in the 70s. Yeah. And I remember I was struck because somebody played me a video or a tape or something at the time, which was Albert King on TV in the 50s or something, okay, black and white, and I I saw this and I went, oh my God, this guy's playing Hendrix lines and Hendrix isn't even out yet. (laughs) (laughs) I remember saying that, it says, this guy's playing Jimi Hendrix lines, and yet Hendrix is not even out yet. So I thought, okay, now I know what Jimmy was listening to, you know?
3: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, it was quite amazing. So when when Varney asked me to do the Albert King thing, and he he wanted me to do two things, he wanted me to do a Stevie Ray one as well, and I really didn't want to do one of Stevie's tunes because I was getting so much help about the Hendrix thing. I said, "It's all I need for people to tell me I'm copying Stevie Ray Vaughan."
3: Right. So I said,
1: "Yeah, I'll do I'll do a tune he did, which was I'll play the blues for you." Right. But I'll do it my way. Yeah. Right. But on the Albert King, it was a real feather in my cap to be able to do an Albert King tune. You know, it was yeah. like, oh, cool. This is the guy. You know, this yeah. is the
0: man. Yeah. Well, you did a you did an amazing job on that song. As a matter of fact, it, it it this is no lie that when new people that I I come in contact with when they start talking about Albert King or they start talking about some of his songs, I'll always say, yeah. But did you hear Frank Marino's version? of that song and when they hear it you know everybody's taken back by it because once again it's just a completely different approach Uh you know so you know frank i really appreciate you know you giving me so much time that's extremely gracious of you
1: my uh, pleasure call me anytime
0: (laughs) well (laughs) i I will I'll, i'll learn the bass and uh see if i can't get in your band (laughs) so when does this air uh this will air in december and what i'll do is before it airs i'll uh i'll send you the uh, graphic for it the imagery that you know the ad that we create for it so that if you want to you know put on your website or or however you do you can if you want um but uh yeah you know uh, normally normally i'm three months out on my uh, my shows because I you know it's like every week I do like today I did four interviews, you uh-huh. know so it, there's there's a lot of people coming on the show and so but I've had a lot of people ask me, you know when you were going to be on or how I was going to get you on or and when they found out you know I was going to interview everybody's like well when's that going to show you know when's that going to air so right I want to try to get it out as you know as quickly as possible and november is actually packed i got some i've actually added a a second show in november i was going to do two shows i normally do airs on wednesdays at threes when it releases you know across all the streaming sites but in november i'm going to do one on sunday too and if the you know listenership stays up there or grows then come december i'll add a second day permanently and, uh, and some now i'm at doubling up you know some shows i got two bands on or you know two things you know some of the younger bands you know i, I might only talk with them for you know half hour and that so i can double them up and that so right yeah yeah and there's a lot well, of Dave, great young call me bands. anytime i will want to talk rap
1: or you know, just ask a question it doesn't have to be for an interview.
0: Well. <laughs> That would and be great.
1: Uh, and let me know when uh, when it's going to be up because uh, I'd like uh you know I'd tell my wife to tune in and stuff she likes
0: to do that Very cool. Very cool. Well, I, I hope I hope things change and you can uh, get to Chicago cuz I got tickets and uh, you know my wife got them for us for me for my birthday and and uh, she knows what a fan I am so I normally don't tell people that but I am a fan, Frank. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm a fan too. <laughs>
1: All right. I'm a fan of I'm a fan of my supporters.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, cool, cool. I appreciate the time I really do, and uh, stay safe. And uh, you know, I might take you up on the phone call sometime.
3: I'm around, man.
0: All right, Frank. Thank you so much. You have a good night, buddy. You too, man. All right, bye. Bye. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that uh, interview with Frank. That conversation with him. Man, it's always an absolute pleasure to be able to talk to him. Um, you know, do yourself a favor. You know, spend some time with his music And that. Uh, you know, if you didn't, if you haven't got a copy of Live at the Agoria, you should get it. It's an absolute amazing uh, concert. He Frank is just extremely talented. Uh, and so uh, hats off to Frank, you know, and... Um, until next week, you know, I'm Jimmy Warren. Thank you so much for tuning in to Guitar Talk.